They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are very much diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 hours or 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head, one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 48, The Discovery Revisited. In episode 47, we heard a theory describing one scenario that may have happened. It's just a theory, but because it came from a close friend and police colleague of Peter Hough, the lead detective in the case, it's one that we can't simply dismiss. Added to this were two pieces of information that I had, that David Nathan had on his deathbed told me that the discovery story wasn't quite what everyone had been told, and that Gartham Gopsall had bought the small piece of land where the body was buried long after the bridge providing access to that land had washed away. So given all that information, well there's probably cause to take a closer look at things. And the place to start is right at the beginning to go through the original discovery story with a fine tooth comb. We've learned a lot in the intervening period since we first heard David Nathan's account, and it might well be worth looking to see what Occam's razor of common sense is starting to tell us. Now, there are two main accounts, both from David Nathan. Interestingly, I've never seen or heard any account from Garth and Gopsall. One of David's accounts is given in a book written by Michael Posner. We know Michael Posner had direct access to Peter Hoof, and it's likely that he also had sight of David Nathan's original statement. In fact, in the book, the account claims to be David Nathan's verbatim statement immediately after the discovery. We also have David Nathan's account that he gave to me back in episode two. So firstly, let me read you David Nathan's statement from the book, and then we'll have a listen to what David Nathan told me back in 2019. So this is David Nathan's verbatim police statement. The premises back onto the River Trent, and from the side of the premises, there's access to a wooden bridge which crosses the water onto the site of a flint mill which was demolished in 1948. Access to the bridge is by way of double gates which are constantly locked with a hasp and padlock. I have the key to the padlock and so has Garth. The same padlock has been in use for four years to my knowledge. I have an arrangement where there is free access to the bridge and the old flint mill mainly for the purpose of shooting vermin and target practice. In return I keep unauthorised people off the bridge and land as we are in a good position to see such intruders, particularly when we are in the workshop. At about 7.30pm on Friday, March the 27th, 1971, now I need to interject, that's wrong in the book, it's March the 26th, Friday, March the 26th. 
but in his statement he says this at about 7 30 p.m on friday march the 27th 1971 i went through the gates over the bridge to that mill site with a view to shooting pigeons in bass's meadow i went across the far side where the ground rises on what was once two kilns from this vantage point one is able to see quite a large expanse of the meadow it's safe to say that I've been on this particular vantage point every day in the week, including Saturdays, but only occasionally on a Sunday, for the past four years. As I approached the top of the rise, I noticed some earth which had been scraped away, which I thought consistent with it having been done by vermin, possibly a fox. It left a saucer-shaped effect in the ground, measuring about two feet across and perhaps about six inches deep. In the centre of that hollow, I saw something white about the size and shape of a saucer. I looked down and carried on only after a short pause to look at it. I returned after about a minute because there was nothing in the meadow to shoot at and I then had a close look at the object. I felt sure that the disturbance had been caused by vermin and that they had been trying to unearth whatever it was I could see. It was still just about daylight, so I went back across the bridge to get a spade. Garth had gone to the grammar school, where he was giving instruction to the scouts in the use of firearms. I returned with a spade, I dug around the object, and I quickly realised it was a human skull. I stopped digging as soon as I realised what it was, and I went back to the house where I telephoned Garth and asked for a message to be got to him requesting his return. He returned within minutes. And after he'd seen what I'd found, he rang the police station and spoke to Detective Inspector Huff. Detective Inspector Huff and a detective sergeant arrived after a few minutes and I pointed out to them what I had found. I have naturally given the matter a lot of thought since the body was discovered, but I cannot recollect having seen any sign of earth disturbance at that spot before. I have walked over that spot every time I have gone onto that land. And as I have already said, that's every day of the week, including the occasional Sunday, and I cannot say I have noticed anything unusual about it before. That's the end of his statement. And now let's listen to what he told me when I first spoke to him in 2019. That's in episode two. Hello. Hello, David. Ken Davis here. Hello there. Is, is it convenient to talk? Yes, Oh, uh, thank you. I really, really appreciate that, David. Uh, you know those two dates you're on about? Yeah. That certain people say one date and certain people say the day after? Yeah. I, I phoned up Pete Huff yesterday, who's the detective inspector in charge of the case at Burton. And he said, yes, he said, but remember, he said, we talked about it, he said, you found only the head on the first date, and the next day the body was found. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Uh, I only uncovered the head. At that point, I suppose, if you didn't really, or anybody realised there was a body attached to it. Okay, so the 26th, because I remember you saying when we spoke on Friday that you felt it was a weekday. Yeah, uh, it definitely was. The reason I know it was a weekday is because, we're, as a hobby, we're firearms, and my business partner myself are firearms dealers, and we yeah. let the rifles, target rifles, out to the local scout group. And when they were returned... Our shot was absolutely rammed with police. <laughs> the score had finished, they dropped all the guns back. That's how I know it was definitely on a Friday, because they met every Friday. They didn't do any digging 
because it was in the evening when yeah. I found it, you know, it was early, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And no, di- uh, except for me, no digging took place on the day I uncovered the head. Okay. It was just a policeman, st- it was covered up, I think it was covered up, and a young policeman stayed with it all night, and then all the digging took place the next day. Just for my benefit, describe for me the location because am I right in thinking you had a workshop on on if you like the Winds Hill side of the river? Correct. Right, and and is that near the flour mills? Yes. Right. The flour mill uh, is about 150, 200 yards, I would imagine, further downstream. Your location was closer to the bridge than than the flour mill. Yeah came out the back door of the workshop and the bridge was there. I've got Because we were doing our watch repairs. Yeah. Unawares, if you looked out to where I sat at doing my watch repairs, yeah. I could actually see uh, the actual, where the site was. Okay. And we saw nothing, nothing into it at all. I think, it would, I think they said the body had been there between nine and yeah. 18 months. The bridge that you used to use to cross the Trent... It's not there anymore, is it? No, in one of the floods. Apparently, the, I didn't realise the bridge wasn't attached to the riverbed. It stood on big wooden pylons. <laughs> one day, there was a flash flood. Yeah. The tree got stuck under the bridge, and it just... Took the whole thing away? Came up and it went straight over the top of the river and disappeared. OK. OK, interesting. In other words, you, you used to come out the front door of their, our shop. Yeah. Go past my business partner's house. Yeah. About 20 paces, turn right, and there is the, the gateway to the bridge. OK, OK. Facing the bridge to my back, that was the manager's house of the actual mill. That location where he ended up, apart from that bridge you were using, which is not there anymore, it's not an easy place to get to, really, is it, from the other way? <laughs> that's, what every, that's what we all think. That's what the police couldn't can work out. It's such an out-of-the-way place. I mean, the bridge... Uh, the actual door was locked with a big padlock. Yeah. It made a. Cl- it was covered in corrugated iron, so it made a right clattering noise when yeah. you actually unlocked it and dropped the actual bar. It's not a matter of tiptoeing across there. You know, it, 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 you, people in the locality could hear the actual bridge being opened. And and I guess the the access, the people who had the keys to it, would have been very few. I would imagine, wouldn't it? As far as I know, unless you work for the mill. And I don't know how many, obviously, I don't know how many keys there were at the mill. We had the only key available. Business part and myself had one key between us, which we kept in the shop. And if we wanted to go across the island, which I did virtually every day, every other day, with a shotgun, we used to go shooting pigeons. And what was it used for, that bridge? It used to be uh, the main access to uh, John Peel's Flint Mill. The Flint Mill, I think, was knocked down in 1960-something. But, but that had been long... Long gone. So disused for years and years. It's Friday. Do you say the, the, the scouts or the schools have been doing some shooting on there or something on, the, on that Friday afternoon? They've got their own range at the grammar school. It's a proper army. Is it like the army cadets when it was yeah. grammar school? They had their own uh, rifle range. OK. They borrowed some two two rifles to actually uh, shoot and do training on the actual range at the grammar school. OK. So, and you'd lent them the... Them, put yeah. Them out for their use. Okay. We have so many rounds of ammunition. They yeah. would pay for what they used, and they'll they be brought back in, and that would be it. So we know it was a Friday. So you you went on your normal shoot, I guess. Yeah. I just went across the bridge with a shotgun. 
What what kind of time are we talking about here? Just no, no, it's just early on the specific on the time. Okay, so you go over the bridge. Was it still light? Yes. Okay, so we know it wouldn't have been later than than six o'clock then. So so you go across and you, I mean, just talk me through how you came to see it. Imagine you've got quite a few trees at the very back of the what we call the island. At the very back, by the fence, there's like a rise, a hump, if you like, but it isn't a natural hump, it's two uh, kilns, like buck-type kilns yep. without yep. the tops on. I've got you, I know exactly what you mean. Two of them. I went, I went to the top of this, seeing if there was any pigeons on the land, on the field, flat the field, and I just happened to look down to the right-hand side and saw this white, looked like a, about the size of a... A saucer just looked like a bag of cement. Thought that's odd, so I tapped it and it sounded hollow. What did you tap it with? Butt of the gun. I got a shotgun. Yeah, yeah. Shotgun. And it sounded hollow, so I thought that's odd. Anyway, carried on. And I thought, no, something's wrong. I, I went back to the shop, dropped the gun off, and got a just got a spade. Went back again, started to dig round it, and realised that it was a, a, a skull. Okay. Uh, so I left the spade, went back and got the business partner, the girl got his now died. Mm-hmm. And uh, we dug round the actual face of the thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the business partner was a member of the Shakespeare Society, and of course, he had to be d- dramatic about it. And he opened the mouth, and the tongue was still pink. Good. Good. It was a bit of a surprise, to say the least. Partner only with this mouth and the tongue was pink I thought oh my god yeah so I think we better make a phone call don't we <laughs> I think we you're right went back to the shop and I the police just by the way just weather conditions things like that what would you any idea what it was like on on, on the on the evening itself it wasn't raining out so I wouldn't have gone across because I got the shotgun wet so you've now got your partner dug around realized it's a skull what happens from there? You go back and make a call? Well, I phoned up the Burton Police Station, yeah. As I said, it all hell let loose. Police were just going out to a retirement party. Because uh, I knew them all. I knew all the police. Of course you would, yeah. The one says, it's Dave. He says, oh, what's, what's the problem, Dave? Found a body or something, Dad. <laughs> I says, you're not kidding me. I says, you're I said, I have, I think. He says, you're joking. I says, no. And they all came down. In Mr. Jones, the deputy chief constable, came down, and all the rest, as I say, is history. They, they say they they tidied it up. They just left a policeman over there all night with it. And next day, I don't know what time. Next day, uh, they came down in full force and started digging and taking photographs. And right. they just happened at sheer chance that Sir Keith Mant, a famous London pathologist, was t- touring the area. And he came and uh, supervised the dig. Okay. Made myself scarce at that point. I mean, did they you know, spend a lot of time with you afterwards in terms of investing, you know, talking you through the... Oh, yes. Um, I suppose I was at one point under suspicion, I don't know, but uh, obviously, you know, it's, but yes, I was, uh, had a full session with the police and made a proper statement. And they took a statement on Gough Garth and off a lot of people that live locally took statements. And to no avail, I'm afraid. It's, it's, it's impossible to think that somebody can disappear like that. It is impossible to think that. You're right. In such an obscure place, 
You know, I'm of the belief that whoever deposited them there knew that space. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You would never have found it yeah. by accident, would you? No, no, you can't find it by accident. Just by the way, obviously, because you, you mentioned you, spend a, you used to spend a bit of time shooting on that kind of piece of land. Yeah, went all through this with the police. I never saw anything. But you see, the, the thing is, with, with cows going across there, quite often you'd see the ground being disturbed. The damn thing was that that's the way, usually, up we walk to get on top of the killing top. We go up that bank, so we must have walked over it several times. So he was buried in the bank? Imagine oh. the side of the wall of the kiln. Which, which rises up, presumably. Rises up, hollowed it out next to the brick. Well, you've seen the photographs. And, and, and that's where it was found, in there. Then they just cut back, filled it again. It wasn't like soil. It was um, like um, the stuff that you get out of fire. And you throw to one side. Clinker stuff. Clinker, yeah. Yeah. Well, that almost sounds like it it's wasn't... A... To dig, let's put it like that. So that's what David Nathan said in 1971 and in 2019. And actually, there's quite a lot to unpack there. And after the break, we're going to get into that in very fine detail. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And thanks for getting involved in the new Facebook page. There's well over 500 people now on that page in just a couple of weeks. And it's the perfect place to ask any questions you may have about the case. You'll find it at the Mysterious Case of Fred the Head, the podcast Facebook page, and there's a link to it in our show notes. And a very warm welcome to everybody, particularly if you're new here, maybe discovering the case for the first time. Let us know where you're from. It's always wonderful to see where our listeners are in the world. And if you do get a chance to subscribe or give the podcast a rating or leave a review, please do because it will help more people find the podcast who will enjoy the journey with us. And please, if you get the chance, let other people know about the podcast. They'll enjoy it too. And the more people that know about the case, the more chance we have of solving it. But we've got some work to do. And we're going to start by trying to understand the timings. Because surprisingly, things are actually far from clear. So, there is quite a lot of things to unpack here, and we're going to take a proper deep dive, in particular in relation to timings, because in any story, timings are critical. They tell a story. So, from the beginning, in his police statement, made literally in the hours and days following the discovery of the body, David Nathan states that he went out shooting pigeons around 730 on Friday the 26th of March. That's when the whole story began. It's quite a clear statement. Now, March 26th is about a month away from now. I'm recording this on February the 24th. It is pitch black at 7.30 in the evening. Now, there is a complication. British summertime was in operation on March the 26th, 1971. Remember, it's spring forward, fall back. So the clocks have gone on an hour. Now, in an interesting side note, there was an experiment which was being conducted in the UK from 1968 that finished in autumn 1971 to keep British summertime throughout the year. So the clocks, they didn't go back in the autumn for three years, 68, 69 and 70. So it would have been lighter, 
but not by much. In fact, I've checked the Met Office records and it was a very overcast day, really dull. And the official sunset for that day is given between 7.15 and 7.30 throughout the UK. In fact, I will put the official Met Office weather map for that day on the Facebook page. It was seven octaves covered in cloud. That's seven eighths in terms of cloud cover on that day. And there was a northerly breeze blowing. So it would have felt very dark, very dark indeed by 7.30. And nightfall, of course, is not unpredictable. Why don't you just go out at four o'clock if you want to go shooting pigeons? Because as far as I know, pigeons aren't nocturnal. Why would you go in the dark? Because 7.30 was dark. So I don't believe David Nathan's police statement that he went around 7.30 p.m. And there's a couple of other very good reasons why that can't be true. Now, it might just be a misremembering on the part of David Nathan in the immediate aftermath of the body's discovery. It might not be sinister at all. But it also might be sinister. And I'll come back to that later. So, what else do we know that throws considerable doubt on the accuracy of David Nathan's timings? Well, for that, you need to work from the other way around. We know that according to Peter Huff's police notes, the report of the body's discovery was made at 7.30pm, coincidentally exactly the same time that David Nathan claims to have gone out shooting. And that by the time the police had arrived, it was pretty much too dark to do anything but find the skull with their torches, post a constable to look after it, and that seems to be consistent with the reporting being made around 730 but as we know from David Nathan's account, a lot of stuff needed to happen between him deciding to go shooting and the reporting of the body's existence. And these are the steps. David Nathan walks out of Time Consortium's workshop with his gun, unlocks the bridge gate, crosses the bridge, walks across the old flint mill foundations, and up that rise to look for pigeons. And remember, when he told me about this, he said it was definitely light. He notices something, but he carries on. He doesn't do anything about it at that time, only a while later, coming back to it to inspect it, tap it with the butt of his gun. He then retraces his steps all the way back to Time Consortium's office and finds a spade. Remember, this isn't his house. He doesn't live there. But he knew where to find a spade. And he carries that spade all the way back, through the gate, over the bridge, digs around a little bit more, until he satisfies himself that he's found a skull. So, how long has all this taken? 15 minutes? But now David Nathan knows definitely He's got a human skull, and it's probably still light. So he calls the police, except he doesn't call the police, does he? He does a very peculiar thing. He decides to try and call his friend, Garth Hamp Gopsel, a friend who's not really very accessible, because this is long before mobile phones. 
Gartham Gopsall is busy instructing scouts at the grammar school scout hut. So David Nathan would then have needed time to find the telephone number of the grammar school, ring the caretaker, because there's not going to be anyone in the school at seven o'clock on a Friday evening. And then the caretaker, presumably, would have to find Gartham Gopsall and pass on a message. And I wonder what he said. I don't think David Nathan would have said to the caretaker, oh, go and tell Garth I've just found a body. Yet, Garth drops everything and he comes back. So Garth would have then have had to make his excuses, walk back to his car, drive back from the grammar school all the way to his house. So all those things, from David Nathan deciding to try and track down Gartham Gopsall to Gartham Gopsall arriving back, that's probably another 15 minutes. And what happens then? Well, they go and have another look. They both cross the bridge again. In the gloom, they find the skull. They scrape around a little bit more. They open the jaw to see flesh. And then they decide to call the police. That's probably taken another five or ten minutes. And by the way, there are even two odd things on that. Because they didn't ring 999. Because that would have been put through to Stafford, 40 miles away, and they would have dispatched a squad car to come over there. They didn't do that. They rang a friend, inverted commas, Peter Huff. There's something not quite right about that. And who rang the police? David Nathan, we found the body? No. Garth Hamp Gopsall rang the police. The person who didn't find the body and there's something not quite right about that either as David Nathan would have been the obvious person to call because he could answer any questions that the police might have about how he found the body but Garth rings the police and it's only then that the police investigation gets going so David Nathan did not decide to go pigeon shooting at 7:30 p.m on Friday, March the 26th. In fact, nothing like it. David Nathan went pigeon shooting, if he did at all, much, much earlier. So why is that important at all? Well, because the closer the discovery of the body to the time of reporting of the body, the more immediate your actions appear. A large gap in time between discovery and reporting suggests a period of time when something else is happening. The longer that period of time, the more suspicious it is. So it is in David Nathan's and Gartham Gopsall's interest to have that period of time as short as possible. But I'm getting more and more convinced that there was a considerable gap in time between discovery and deciding to call the police. And there are a couple of other things that when re-listening to that account by David Nathan struck me as odd in a way that didn't quite strike me as odd before. Firstly, David Nathan finds the body, doesn't ring the police, so clearly he doesn't think it's an emergency. But equally, he doesn't wait for Garth to return home naturally from the scouts. Why not, if it's not an emergency? 
but instead he goes through this complicated process of trying to reach Garth very urgently. And we know that Garth Hamp-Gopshall gets back to the house as fast as he can. And we know that from David Nathan's own account. So Garth is clearly dealing with this very urgently. It all suggests a bit of a panic, but that Garth has the final say on what to do. In fact, I can almost hear him saying, don't do anything till I get there and I'll deal with the police. Now, of course, there could be a perfectly legitimate explanation for all this. But there's one other thing I noticed that completely passed me by when David Nathan went through his account with me back in 2018. And it's this. I'll play it again. He's hollowed it out next to the brick. Well, you've seen the photographs. And, and, and that's where it was found in there. Then they just cut back, filled it again. It wasn't like soil. It was um, like um, the stuff that you get out of fire and you throw to one side. Clinker stuff. Clinker, yeah. Yeah. But that almost sounds like it wasn't... A... Dig, let's put it like that. He says in that last second, it wasn't difficult to dig. Let's put it like that. They hollowed it out and they backfilled it again. How does he know it was they? How does he know there was more than one person involved? Remember, when the skull is found by David, it's already exposed. David went and got a spade, dug around a bit more, but not very much. He would have only needed to expose it by another four or five inches. And then Garth and David did a little bit more and then they saw the flesh inside the mouth. But David Nathan does seem to know a lot about how easy it was to dig through that area. It's made up of ash and clinker. It's very easy to dig. That's what he says. Now, that's a lot to notice when you're just digging through perhaps four inches on that skull. Or had he dug through that soil much more extensively on another occasion? There's a lot to think about. But I'm going to leave this part there for this episode. But there's something else I need you to know about that goes back to the John Jick investigation. We've spent quite a bit of time over the last few weeks re-looking at the original discovery story and there's plenty more to do on that. But at the same time, there's also been some very interesting developments in the John Jick subplot. I had kind of intended to leave that strand of the investigation alone for a while, but it seems that fate didn't really want me to do that, and things don't always run to a schedule. You may remember, when John Jick went missing, police had spoken about a letter that had been received by an individual on the mainland just before John's disappearance. That had always intrigued me. And since I've come back from the Isle of Man, armed with some new names, well, there's been quite a lot of detective work going on. And we were able to track down the nephew of the person we think was the recipient of that letter. That person who was in contact with John Jick immediately before he disappeared. And he's still alive. And by the time you listen to this episode, I will have spoken to him. So I believe this was the person that John Jick was supposed to be meeting in Liverpool on that fateful day. 
though I'm about to learn a lot more. But already, something astonishing has come from this, from our initial contact. When the nephew made contact with that person to see if they would be willing to talk to me about their friendship with John Chick, they naturally started talking about John, something he hadn't done in many years. And that person has never heard the podcast, but they listened to a couple of episodes. And then that man said this to his nephew. Of course, John Jick had a problem with his neck and shoulders. They were a bit twisted. Now, we know Fred had that problem, this torticollis. But until that moment, I've never heard anyone say that John Jick suffered with a neck problem. A very similar complaint to what we know Fred had. And this person knew John Jick very well. And if John Jick did have a problem with a twisted neck, well, that's what Fred had. Could this just be another coincidence? Or are things really starting to add up now? As somebody said to me last week, if Fred is not John Jick, they sure as hell made an effort to be similar. Hopefully, by the time we record the next episode, I will have had a detailed conversation with this person. We'll know a lot more about what was going on around the time of John Jick's disappearance, directly from one of the last people he ever corresponded with. There'll also, of course, be more on the work we're doing to investigate further the original discovery story. So these two things are now happening in parallel. And there's a lot to do. So hang on in there, because I think things are reaching a very interesting stage. I'm off to Lisbon for a few days for some winter sunshine, but we'll be back in a few weeks. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.